Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Paul Conley, a member of Lothar and the Hand People, a band formed in Denver. During their run in the late 60s, they pioneered the use of the theremin and Moog synthesizer, the first rock band to tour and record using synthesizers, providing an amazing influence on all of the electronica musicians who have followed. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, G. It's great to be here. Lothar and the Hand People came together in Denver in 1965. Singer John Emelin, a native of New York State, had headed west to study at the University of Denver, where he decided to form a group. Their first gig was in Aspen on New Year's Eve, and the very next day, New Year's Day of 1966, everyone dropped out of school, and you joined shortly thereafter. John and the other guys had been folk musicians, mostly, but coming back to DU in summer of 65, he stopped off and saw the Rolling Stones play at McCormick Place in Chicago. It's a big theater there. And to show you how things were different then, it was John and Richard Willis, who was a co-founder of the band, the Hand People, they decided they liked this group, and they said, let's go meet them. So they walked backstage without anybody questioning them at all, found the dressing room that the Rolling Stones had, and went in and introduced themselves to Mick Jagger. And they'd seen all this teenage screaming girls of Chicago. So they said to each other on their drive back to Denver, why don't we do that, too? We could do this. We'll put away our folk instruments, and we'll go back to the fraternity house and start a rock band. And that's what they did. There was one particular job where they went up to Fort Collins. I don't know if they had chicken wire to protect the band, but it was a pretty uh, rowdy crowd of people that arrived in pickup trucks and tractors. And the second song, the second guitar player said, I can't do this anymore. And he walked off the stage walked outside into this warm summer night and he uh, had an epiphany and he became a follower of Eastern Indian mysticism and philosophy and took up the sarod, which is an East Indian instrument. So they needed another guitar player. I auditioned for John and our guitar player, who is named Kim King. And Kim was the local star folk guitarist. He was huge in that scene at the Exodus before the rock era. Yeah. You were the outlier because you attended the University of Colorado yeah. in Boulder, uh, right. not Denver University. Classically trained on the double bass. You studied right. political philosophy mm -hmm. at CU, took honors courses mm -hmm. in jazz. I had a folk background also, so I always considered myself a folky, but my ambition was to be a fine jazz player. But there really wasn't that much work. So I was looking for something different. So I thought, well, okay, I can play guitar. And I auditioned for Kim and John. Now, Kim was a star guitar player. He told me years later that one of the reasons he accepted me into the band was because I wasn't anywhere near as good as he was. <laughs> <laughs> Lothar and the hand people, John and Kim, yourself, Rusty and Tom. But Lothar, not a person. At our first rehearsal at the Folklore Center, I looked in the corner and there was a theremin. 
Now, I had been curious and wanting to do electronic music for many years, probably since I was a child and I saw the movie Forbidden Planet. Which had some electric things. circuits, electronic circuits, but I didn't have the knowledge how to build circuits, make circuits, or access to instruments. I didn't have enough money to buy anything. But when I walked into that rehearsal, I saw this theremin in the corner, which happened to have been made by Robert Moog of the Moog Synthesizer Company. I said, you've got a theremin. I can't believe it. we got to use it. In those days, every club owner said, you have to play two songs. One was Gloria, the other was Louie Louie. You had to play those two songs or they wouldn't hire you. Great songs, but the guys got bored of playing them after a while, and they turned Louie Louie into this never-ending guitar solo where Kim would just show off for quite a while, many minutes. And during that time, John was a singer, so he had nothing to do. So he started doing gags, like he would bring a trombone case and go through all these gestures. And then at the last snap of the case, he would accidentally, on purpose, drop the case, and it would be full of super balls, rubber balls. (laughs) He'd go, oops, so the whole club was alight. So he did stuff like that, different joke every night. So he said, I could do theremin solo during Louie Louie, along with the guitar. So it started as just another joke, but we found out at the Exodus that people were mesmerized by the sound and by John's playing of it. These were in the psychedelic days, so people's imaginations were at a high pitch. Elevated. Elevated. (laughs) Arguably the first electronic performance instrument invented by a Russian, Leon Theremin, back in the 1920s. An electronic wand has an oscillator translated any movement around it into electronic sounds and we allude to the horror movies of the 50s with that eerie pitch and the Beach Boys in good vibrations that whistling is in that classic so a wood box metal aerial protruding and you move your hand to and from the area and the frequency goes up or down accordingly. And John could control the circumference of the field, if you will, and made it sound like a violin or even a voice at times. And one of the mesmerizing qualities of the performance is that the player does not ever touch the instrument. You just interact physically with the electromagnetic fields. So that was pretty amazing because he would do these broad gestures and the sound would happen and people were just amazed by it. So from the first night, that became the regular thing. Every time we played, at least during Louie Louie, the theremin would be brought out. People would say, what is that instrument? And then it dawned on us pretty quickly We have to call it Lothar. We already had the name, and none of us were Lothar, and it just made sense that we were the hand people, and that electronic instrument was Lothar. You guys were playing around Denver. For what proved to be your last gig as residents, Lothar was the support act to the Love and Spoonful 
who were scheduled to play at Red Rocks, but it got moved to the Denver Coliseum because of inclement weather. For you personally, that was a tough thing because back then playing Red Rocks was a career benchmark for any act, and that was your shot at it, and it didn't happen. Your mom, Ella Jean, got to do it for the family. She performed at Red Rocks all the way back in 1939. She was a music student at the University of Denver and the studio and rehearsal pianist for the Lillian Cushing School of Ballet. And George Cranmer was the brains behind Red Rocks. He brought them up there in the summer of 39 to test the acoustics. It's been lost in this era of amplified music. Red Rocks a natural amphitheater. They used to conduct what they called the dime test. You dropped a dime on the stage and you could hear it throughout the venue. You. And your mom was at the piano. They brought up a dozen dancers, put a plywood cover on the stage to level it out. Back in 1939, they didn't have any of those amenities. And anyway, your mom got to play Red Rocks. Much to my pride. I was, of course, not there, but not even a gleam in her eye <laughs> yet. <laughs> However, the rescheduled gig at the Denver Coliseum did have its upside. The headliner, The Love and Spoonful, led by John Sebastian, suggested that you guys move to New York, that there was more opportunity for you there. Not only that, but he suggested a place where we could work. We rose through the ranks about as quickly as you could, what you'd call a showcase club, where bands would want to play because it would bring them to the attention of record companies and managers and booking agents. It would be like playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles. They would have three bands each night. So what a band would have to do to be able to play there is, first of all, book an audition. If they liked you, they would give you one night slot. If they liked you then, they might give you another one night slot or... In the case of the hand people, you might go up to where you were the featured band for that week. See the outline figures were ballooning from their faces, sitting there within your chair, going to all sorts of places. So we went over there on John Sebastian's suggestion the next day. We did the audition, so we didn't have to even wait. They gave us the one-night slot. The next week after that, we were the featured band for that week. At the end of that week, the manager said, I want to be your manager. I've been looking for a band ever since the Lovin' Spoonful, and I think you guys are the one that could really make it. You will be the featured band from now on until you get your record deal, which is what happened, and we signed with Capitol Records. We instantly got attention in New York. Publicity, we were in the Village Voice, we were in the New York Times, offers from booking agents, offers from management companies, all in a few weeks. I can't imagine a group going from being totally unknown to having a record contract any faster than the hand people. And I think what that says about the band, a group from Colorado, is that the group really had something different and unique and, dare I say, special. We were special enough that we didn't seem to be able to be commercial. (laughs) Our records didn't sell. And to this day, it's something of a cult. Sex 
I had followed serious composers like Karl-Heinz Stockhausen in his electronic music, Luciano Berio, the Italian composer. But I was also aware at that point of the RCA synthesizer in composers like Otto Luning and Usachevsky, the people that had really created that synthesizer at RCA in the 40s. I'd heard that music and was very curious about it. For me, it was a matter of getting access to the equipment. I had not the means to acquire anything for myself. On a chance meeting, I met a man named Walter Sear. We were on the elevator, and he looked at Lothar, the theremin, and he said, I helped make that instrument. And I said, how is that? turned out he was a backer of the Moog company. So he asked me, why do you have a theremin and what do you do with it? So I explained to him my ideas that I had formulated what I will call the ultimate Lothar. The ultimate Lothar, in my mind, was going to be a robot that could not only play back music that had been recorded, but actually even play instruments itself. So I explained some of these ideas to Walter Sear, and he said, meet me at my office two weeks from today and I will have an instrument that I think might be able to do everything you're talking about. Not quite true. However, I showed up in two weeks, and he had delivery of a new modular Moog synthesizer, a, a big one. A portable unit, so to speak. Yeah, yeah like a big freezer is portable. <laughs> From that time on, whenever we would play, Walter would arrange for us to have a Moog. There were the usual missed opportunities, the story for many bands of that era, management hassles and issues with the record company. Emmelin always ascribed it as you just being ahead of your time. But it was an interesting time for record companies. They were building the bike as they rode it, so to speak, signing a lot of, dare I say, weird bands in that era. Lothar did two albums, 1968, Presenting Lothar and the Hand People, and Space Him in 1969. Here in Denver, a station called KMYR played tracks called Machines and Sex and Violence from Mm -hmm. the first album, but no chart action nationally. Didn't you get a song played on American Bandstand with Dick yes, Clark? we did. The band had moved to Brooklyn, and Rusty, the bass player, was in the basement, and he yelled up, Hey, guys, we're on American Bandstand. So we all ran down to the basement, and sure enough, Dick Clark was playing a recording of Machines. This was on the Rate a Record section of the program, where they would play a song and let a couple of teens decide whether it had a good beat and you could dance to it. That's right. The kids on the TV show were just not really able to dance to it. So they were awkwardly moving around, and he asked the first teenager, how would you rate this record? And she said, "Um, what's the lowest I can give it? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well... 35, Dick Clark was actually pretty nice about it. But don't you think the lyrics are interesting? Don't you find the sounds unusual? And she said, I give it a 35. (laughs) (laughs) So he asked the next teenager, this boy came up, and 
I said, uh, how would you rate it? And he said, I'll give it a 60. All right. Not so good, but I tried to thank him for that later on. I thought it was pretty cool. The great Kim King also was a sound engineer starting at Electric Ladyland, which was Jimi Hendrix's studio. And he had actually played with Jimmy when you went to New York when he was still billed as Jimmy James. I That's believe. right. A friend of ours came in and said, hey, there's this great guitar player playing around the corner from you guys downstairs in the Cafe Wa. So during our break, Rusty and Tom and I went over there. Uh, the bill said Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And I thought, this guy is good. Anyway, it turned out Jimmy James, his real name was Jimi Hendrix. So Rusty and I went up and we introduced ourselves to him and said, hey, we're playing around the corner and we practice every day. If you're not doing anything, come over and see us in the afternoons. So he came more than once for our afternoon rehearsals and he would sit in with us and play. And I can't say he became a friend of mine, but he became a friend of Kim and therefore one of his engineers with Electric Ladyland. I can say that Watching Jimmy tune his guitar was a more rewarding musical experience for me than watching the majority of guitar players actually play. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in 69, we were playing at a club called The Scene in New York City. There was one great evening there where he came the same evening as Johnny Winter. And it was great because both Jimmy and Johnny Winter and Kim were all, three of them on the stage playing at the same time. That was a great evening. Kim was that good. He had the respect of Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Winter and pretty much any guitar player that saw him play. such a talent. Not only as a musician, he was involved in the nascent stages of the computer revolution, writing programs and code. He became a webmaster. During our last months as a band, he was already working with Jimi Hendrix, and his main engineer was Eddie Kramer. Kim was a protege of Eddie Kramer, so Eddie and Kim created Electric Ladyland and built that. Playing in Montreal, this gigantic exhibition hall and the stage was a professional boxing ring set <laughs> plunk in the middle of this room. We were actually second bill to the Blues Project, which was Al Cooper. It was a great band. At the bottom of the bill was Tiny Tim with Tiptoe Through the Tulips. We were to follow Tiny Tim, and he went out to this little boxing ring, and there were 13,000 people there and they hated him. <laughs> they were throwing stuff at him. He started pretty close to a riot. They really hated it. Promoter came back and said, well, time for you to go on. And I said, I'm not going down there. <laughs> no way. And he said, no, no, come on. I'll protect you. Don't worry, you little wuss. So we went down there. We climbed up through the ropes onto the boxing ring, plugged in, and we just started this big big rock and roll beat and people stopped throwing stuff at us and started dancing 
there was so much energy in that room. As we really got going with our set, this woman climbed up through the ropes into the boxing ring, and she was wearing black leotards and had short, dark hair and white face. She was a mime, like Marcel Marceau, built like an amazing dancer. We're playing, and all of a sudden there's this woman, and that just drove the crowd even crazier. She got wilder and wilder in her dancing, and she fell on her back on the mat, writhing around and humping, and people were yelling and screaming. And then she spread-eagled and just threw herself onto the ropes of the boxing ring. So exciting. We got off stage, and we were practically yelling at each other because of the adrenaline of it. Who was that person? Where did she come from? Well, she was Leonard Cohen's girlfriend for a period, and he wrote a song about her. I uh, took Suzanne uh, to Suzanne? the river <laughs> early in the morning with her perfect body and mind. That's who it was. It was that woman. Later on, we calmed down and sitting in the station wagon waiting for Kim. Where the heck is Kim? Finally, Kim casually walks out of this gigantic building with it's that woman in her white face and leotard and holding this whole big bunch of helium balloons. So Kim and she get into the station with all the freaking balloons. And he says, well, you can drop me off. <laughs> I hate him for that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he was... I love Kim. He had studied cool. He had that mystique. Lothar and the Hand People went your separate ways about 1971, but the members went on to other pursuits and had an incredible wide-ranging impact, what you call the reach of the Hand People. Tom Fly, the percussionist, became an engineer and had credits on dozens and dozens of albums, ranging from the original Woodstock album to The Grateful Dead. His first gold record as an engineer was American Pie by Don McLean. He went to work for a recording company in New York called The Record Plant. He recorded people like Elvis, and Ringo Starr, Sly and the Family Stone, Rick James, Tower of Power, David Bromberg, Sammy Hagar, Greg Allman, and Cher. And then, noticeably, with Mickey Hart, the drummer for The Grateful Dead. His whole Planet Drum initiative. Planet Drum stuff. They did chanting monks from Tibet. Mm -hmm. So many things. Yeah. Rusty Ford, the bass player, was a creative force in the advertising world. He did television commercials based in New York, the biggest clients in the world. After the hand people broke up, he actually went to California and played with Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Mike Love put together his own band and Rusty played bass. Then we had tried to reform as a video enterprise back in Denver in the late 70s. Rusty came out and we actually got a video synthesizer, which was a forgotten instrument now where you could actually, in the same way that we used to create sound, you would create visual stuff with the video synthesizer. We had our own Moog synthesizer by then, of course. And we tried to marry those together with television cameras and stuff here in Denver. Again, too far ahead of our time. We worked here with Zephyr, our good friends, Freddie and Henshi, a great band here, and the Flyers, another great country rock band. We had fun with that, just couldn't expand outside of Denver and Colorado with that. But Rusty went back to New York, and now with his 
experience with our video production company here. But Rusty went back to New York and became a very successful producer of commercials. Cody, TV spots with Beyonce and Rihanna. He did Revlon, L'Oreal, Ralph Lauren, Gillette, Bayer, American Express, AT&T, Coke and Pepsi, DuPont, Mobile, McDonald's, Kraft Foods, Bank of America, General Mills, Procter & Gamble, and about every car company you could think of. Kim King passed away in 2016. You're still in touch with John Emelin. Sort of retired to Mexico. And had a in, good post-Lothar in, life. Yeah, Rusty's in New York. Tom is in Portland now and still works for Mickey Hart sometimes, but he's nominally retired. And you, sir, have made your living in music for decades now. Everything from music for a Sam Shepard play to a piece for Sesame Street and all things in between. I've done more than 200 films. I started doing commercials in New York while we were recording our first album with Bob Margaleff, who's known as a surround sound mixer in L.A. now. He became Moog programmer for Stevie Wonder. He did two of the biggest records that Stevie Wonder did. I like to say he took what I showed him and did well with it. (laughs) (laughs) One interesting career spike that you folks had back in 1997. 30 years after your heyday of recording a song called It Comes On Anyhow, Britain's Chemical Brothers were the reigning kings of electronica music in 1997, pulsing dance music, frenetic beats, lots of computerized or synthesized treated sound effects, minimal vocals, just trying to get that, shall we say, ecstatic ambience working for dance crowds at the time. Those guys understood the potentially psychedelic nature of electronic music. They put out an album called Dig Your Own Hole, which was a number one album in the United Kingdom. track it doesn't matter they sampled a passage from Lothar's song it comes on anyhow which was one of your earliest and strangest experiments with electronics the sound effect laden tape loop and John Emelin repeatedly chanting it doesn't matter so the Chemical Brothers added this thumping dance track to it, and as a result, they shared the songwriting credit with you and yeah, the band, and with John. The Chemical Brothers came to Denver on their tour to promote that record. So I was somehow able to get a hold of them and be invited to that show, and I got to hang out with them afterwards backstage and talk to the guys. And Ed Simons and Tom Rowland yeah, were the duo. super mm-hmm. nice guys. And so they tell me, On their first trip to the United States, they were in Florida. They went to a vinyl store, you know, you could buy old records, and they saw this one album that had Moog synthesizer on it. So they bought that. They took that back to England, and with our composition, it comes on anyhow. They actually sampled about two and a half seconds 
what was basically an improvisational piece that I had mixed together. My main contribution, other than mixing it, was that I created a tape loop, which was a physical piece of recording tape. And I had taken stuff that the group did, like John saying, it doesn't matter. I reversed Rusty's bass playing, so it was sort of backwards bass and put some other sound effects on that. But I had a physical loop of tape that would play through over and over, and that's exactly what they sampled. It's interesting to me and great that they took that very piece, my loop, and made it their loop and then built it into a dance piece. I'm forever grateful to them. Not only did they sample it, but it was all done legitimately so that the Hand People's Music Publishing was able to receive royalties from that. It was really our most commercially successful <laughs> adventure. Our records are rare and valuable. You can't see me, you can't touch me, you don't know my name. But what goes on between us here is happening all the same. What's your favorite musician's joke? A blind rabbit and a blind snake bump into each other. The snake wraps itself around the rabbit, and it says, You are soft and furry. I think you're a rabbit. And the rabbit says, You are cold and slimy. I think you're a concert promoter. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of made that one up. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.